The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I am going away and you will look for me, but you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, He is not going to kill himself, is he? Because he said, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, You belong to what is below. I belong to what is above. You belong to this world, but I do not belong to this world. That is why I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What I told you from the beginning. I have much to say about you in condemnation, but the one who sent me is true. And what I heard from him, I tell the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them of the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am, and that I do nothing on my own, but I say only what the Father taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what is pleasing to him, because he spoke this way, many came to believe in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Because he spoke this way, many came to believe in him. Be honest with me. How many of you are puzzled by that statement because you're thinking, I'm not sure I even understand what he just said. It is one of these mysterious passages in the Gospel of St. John, not so mysterious in its meaning as why is it that this, the Holy Spirit is telling us, was so transparent it moved hearts, when to our ears, two thousands later, it sounds opaque, not clear at all, and yet there's this strident insistency in the way the Lord is speaking here. And this in no small measure is part of what the evangelist is telling us when he says, because he spoke in this way. Not merely because he said these things. There is something about the manner of his speaking. There is something so strong about his saying of these things that it cuts right to the heart and provokes a response. Jesus here is insisting on the absolutely fundamentally unique character of his relationship with the Father and his own divine dignity. And even if those who are listening to him don't understand everything, there's something about this insistence on his absolute uniqueness, his absolute decisiveness, that gets people's attention and stirs their hearts. Ours is a world of easy compromises with regard to things of faith, 
of a certain indifferentism with regard to faith, where all too many of us think it makes very little difference about what we believe or whom we believe in. And yet note the Lord insisting that whom you believe in makes all the difference. What you believe makes all the difference, or it's simply not worth believing in the first place. And so the Lord, turning to the Pharisees, gives them this strongly worded teaching, which in no small measure is deliberately placed alongside our first reading from the book of Numbers, the great incident of the seraph serpents in the desert. And to understand that incident, we have to have in the back of our mind the whole troubled history of the people of God, especially over the 40 years they have spent in the desert since the Lord rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. This is not the first time they've complained. This is not the first time they have questioned the motivations of God or of Moses. This is the latest in what seems to be an unrelenting series of stubborn refusals to believe. And it's a remarkable moment because as they turn to Moses and say, why did you bring us here to die in the desert where there's no food and no water? The simple fact of the matter was it was raining manna for them every single day. And the Lord was sending quail for them to eat every single day. And so they say, we are sick of this wretched food. The very food that miraculously is raining down from heaven to keep them alive. What a remarkable moment this is. This is a people grown tired of the way that God is caring for them. This is a people who has grown tired of recognizing the miraculous in their lives. And that should give all of us pause because we often think, if only I had a miracle or two, it'd be so much easier to believe. And here is Israel receiving a miracle raining down on them every day. And what do they say? We're tired of the miracle. Could we get a different one? Why did you bring us here to die when the simple fact of the matter is the only reason they're alive is that God is showing his care for them every day. And we see here the bitter truth of that statement that familiarity breeds contempt. They've taken it for granted now to such a degree that they've lost the ability to value it. And in doing that, they begin to set their hearts on other things. Oh, if we only had the kind of food we had back in Egypt, oh, that would be so much better. Forgetting the fact that the other thing they had in Egypt was slavery, and that wasn't better. But when the appetite of the heart, when the appetite of the mind, when the appetite of the body feels in some way dissatisfied, 
very quickly we can find ourselves disordered. Instead of being content with or willing to look for and receive the greater things, we're preoccupied by the lesser things. And in reaching for the lesser things, we're willing to trade away the better things. We're willing to go back to slavery for the sake of the taste of that food that I miss. And when you put it that way, it sounds crazy. And yet the human heart does these things. Time and time again, we see people going back to relationships that are abusive because of the discomfort of being alone. Time and time again, we see tragically in the case of addiction, the willingness, if we're not careful, to re-enslave ourselves to something because of a moment of pleasure. This, this tendency that we see here is not unique to Israel. What's unique is simply the scale on which we're seeing it and how obvious the care of God is. But, but that it happens is not surprising at all because we know this, our hearts do this. And so it is, they complain so strongly, in a sense what God does is he says, if you're tired of me keeping you alive, fine. Let me show you what happens. And so he steps away from his protection of them for a moment, and the serpents arrive, and they're poisonous. And this is the Lord schooling his people and saying, if what you want are the things of the world, let me show you in the end what they do. And they poison the people, many of whom die. And all of a sudden we see that left alone without the care of God, this is what waits for us. This is what waits for us. We live in a world with a certain venomous character to it. And unless the Lord sustain us and strengthen us, sooner or later that venom of the world penetrates us. And while it may not physically kill us, it can begin spiritually putting us to death. And all of a sudden experiencing the consequences as we see time and time again. And again, at first glance, this sounds like an unthinkably harsh consequence except the Lord has tried all kinds of other ways. This is the last in a series. And here the Lord says, then let me give you the full consequence of what it is to step out of my protection while I'm protecting you. And they suddenly realize that without the Lord, they're lost because the desert is a deadly place. And this is the remarkable thing. A desert is not a safe place. And yet, this people has been kept alive for 40 years in that dangerous place. Because every single day, God has been with them. And they say, why did you bring us here to die? So the serpents come, they bite the people, and suddenly they realize that unless the Lord protect us, protects us, the dangers of this world will overwhelm us. They will consume us. They will bring us to nothing. And so they cry out for help. And note what the Lord says to Moses. Make a snake. Just like the snakes that have been biting these people. Make a snake. 
and put that snake up on a post and lift it up so that when they look at it, they see what will heal them. But what does it mean for them to look at the snake? They see on the one hand that chastising consequence which has come upon them because of their stubborn disobedience, their rejection of the Lord. They look upon that snake and they see that which they are powerless to overcome by themselves. And they look at that snake and they see how much they need God. Note the triple character of this. They learn a truth about themselves. They learn a truth about the world in which they find themselves and they learn the truth about their need for God. And in doing so, healing can come to them. Jesus now refers to exactly this incident as he is speaking in our gospel reading. And so note what he does. He says to the Pharisees, you are going to die in your sins, much like so many died in the desert in their stubbornness. And why will they do that? Because you have taken your eyes away from the things of heaven and given them over to and given yourselves over to the things of this world. You belong not to heaven anymore. Your heart is living elsewhere. Your heart belongs only to the things of this world and there is no future in those things just like we saw in the desert. Why do you keep giving us this wretched food that we are tired of? We're sick of the miracle. We prefer something else. And Jesus is saying to those who are the custodians of the law, your hearts have done this too. Your hearts have done this too. As much as you quote the law, your hearts have been given to somebody else, to something else, and that can't save you. Only one can save you. And so the Lord says, unless you believe that I am, that I am the fulfillment of the law, that I am the one who was promised, that I am, which is the name of God in the Old Testament, I am who am. The, Lord, the name that the Lord gives to Moses at the burning bush. Unless you believe that I am, that I am related to him inseparably, indivisibly, that divinity is present in me. There's no way forward for you. If your hearts are truly given to what is above, then the one who comes from above will be heard by you when he speaks. This is what strikes the people. And the Lord says this with such a bold, strong insistence that it is very much the voice of God penetrating the fog of their hearts and saying, oh, there's someone greater than just another teacher here. There's someone greater than just another guy who gives advice here. And then the Lord continues and looking to ahead to what he knows is going to come, 
Because the death of Jesus is not an accident. He is coming to lay his life down. And he knows exactly who it is who is going to put him to death. He says, there will come that day when you lift me up. And he is speaking of his being lifted on the cross. Like the serpent was placed on a wooden pole and lifted, the Lord is saying, I will be placed on wood and I will be lifted. Jesus refers to this a couple times in the scriptures when he speaks of his crucifixion. He speaks of it well in advance, and in speaking about it, he is giving us a key to understanding what is happening. Because he says, when I am lifted, when you lift me and look upon me, then you will know. Note that statement. When the serpent was lifted in the desert, then the people looked and saw and realized. And the Lord is saying, there is something about my dying on the cross which must be looked at, which must be seen. This is one of the reasons we hang crucifixes in our homes and we have crucifixes in our churches. When I am lifted and you look upon me, you will know that I am. And what is he saying? When you look upon me hanging on the cross, what will you see? You will see on the one hand, I am wearing the face of what your sinfulness really does to you, of how it destroys you, of how it empties you of your human dignity, of how it brings the human being to destruction and nothingness. When you look upon me on the cross, Understand, you're looking at yourself in a certain way. This is what sin does. It destroys. And I am showing you that. When you look upon me in the cross, you will also see that you can't save yourself from this. You need someone else. And when you look upon me lifted up on the cross, you'll see that someone is doing that. That I have come to bear the guilt and the pain and the woundedness that you can. And you can look at me and see your need for the healing that only heaven can give. And in doing that, you can open your heart and heaven will heal you. What a remarkably beautiful statement that really is when we catch it. But this is the meaning of displaying the cross. And so note, we say it now with our cross covered. And why? Because over these last days of Lent, we are dealing with the fact that there is a certain hiddenness of all of these things until they finally happen on that great original Good Friday. And one of the highlights of the Good Friday liturgy is the unveiling of the crucifix before we come forward to venerate it with a kiss. But note the idea then that in this moment, as the Lord is lifted on his cross, the veil is taken away. And now we can see clearly, as the prophet said of old, they shall look upon the one that they pierced. And in looking, in looking, feel sorrow and beg forgiveness. How beautiful that really is. 
And note here, who would think that this lifting of a serpent up in the desert would be fulfilled in Jesus being lifted on the cross? And the stubbornness of Israel of old becomes the vehicle by which the Lord will communicate a greater truth hundreds and hundreds of years later and show us what real healing really is, what real trust in God really is, and what the true consequence of our belonging and giving ourselves over so exclusively to the things of this world really does to us. And there's a certain continuation of this statement of Jesus that happens every time we say Mass. Because during the Mass, there's that moment where he is lifted up. There is the showing of the host and the chalice to the faithful. Then there is the lifting of the paten and the chalice in the elevation of the doxology. And then right before Holy Communion, there is the lifting and showing of the consecrated body of Christ where we say, behold, look upon him. He is lifted. When I am lifted and you look upon me, then you will know, and healing can be yours. And what do we do? We look, we see who he is, we acknowledge our lack of worthiness, and we say, but if you make me heal, if you heal me, indeed my soul will be healed. We plead for that healing, and then we come forward to receive him. He who is both the divine physician and the saving medicine, which heals our souls. And what a marvelous gift indeed that is. Amen.